This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. And me, Tegan Taylor. Today, a growing problem that's only worsened in the pandemic, turning to alcohol to cope with anxiety. Why are women not getting the same critical and urgent care men do when experiencing a heart attack? And highly anticipated modelling is now out. That's the work done by the Doherty Institute that will be used by the government to help guide our way out of the pandemic. Australia is reaching for an initial target of 70% of the population aged over 16 being vaccinated before we move to the next phase of the roadmap out of COVID and are able to start changing the way we manage outbreaks. The Doherty modelling also found that after vulnerable elderly people, the next highest priority people for vaccination are 30 to 40 year olds and after that the 16 to 29 age group because both groups are high transmitters of the virus. The model also assumed that younger children don't transmit the virus as much and are protected as having, by having adults vaccinated. But Professor Emma McBride, an infectious diseases physician and epidemiologist at James Cook University, has her own modelling, which suggests that vaccines are needed for even younger children if we are to reach sufficient immunity to open up safely again, and that the virus may be more contagious than assumed. Professor McBride is on the line from Townsville. Welcome to The Health Report. Uh, thank you for having me. Good evening. Hi. Now, Emma, a lot is riding on this. So let's start with mm. the infectiousness of the virus. The Doherty has the Delta variant, the R number, that's how many people that one person can spread it to, as, as less than the alpha strain at 3.8. So just to go through what I understand here, and I've probably got it very wrong, is the Wuhan version of, this, of the virus was 2.3 or thereabouts. Um, the alpha variant was 4.7, one person compared to 4.7, and the delta is thought to be between 6 and 8. Yet um, the Doherty had it at 3.8, which is actually less than I think the alpha is. You've got it more than that at 5. Now, it's critical to get this mm. right. What are the implications <laughs> of this number? Sure. Yeah, look, so huge. one thing is to, and this is a complicated um, situation, to distinguish between the basic reproduction number and the effective reproduction number. So the Delta actually say that they think the basic reproduction number for Delta is eight, but they think that with very sort of light touch public health measures and tracing and testing, isolation and quarantine, it can get down as low as 3.6. And they base that on some data from Sydney pre-lockdown, uh, but they acknowledge that it's very uncertain what this real number is. So so that's that's where we're at. Um, my, my work has realised that the outcomes are very, very sensitive to this number and we have a lot of uncertainty about what it really is. Uh, and so I've explored actually a whole range of um, uh, the effective R, um, the, sorry, the effective reproduction number uh, from as low as three to as high as seven. And I've also developed an online tool so that as new variants can come along, people can just sort of dial it up or dial it down um, and really explore what the consequences are of this number. So this is not a lockdown number because the lockdown number in New South Wales at the moment is just a little bit over one. But you, this, sure. is, this is in between lockdowns when we go back to almost normal behaviour. Yes, this is the, the uh, observations that the Doherty and their collaborators made about what was happening in the community in between lockdowns. Now, one of the assumptions of that is that that impacted evenly across the different groups in the in the population. So, in other words, with a 
some of the consequences of this modelling assume that children were affected just as much. So in other words, it's just as easy to reduce the infectiousness of children as it is to reduce the infectiousness of adults. Um, and that's clearly not necessarily so when you think about things like mask use and that children can't all wear masks or if you think about just the way kids behave and, and the realist, how realistic is it to stop them from contacting each other at school, for example. Okay, so you say five. What's the, what are the implications if it's five rather than 3.6 or 3.8? Yeah, well, what's really interesting, uh, so first of all, I think my methods are very similar to the Doherty methods. And I've been talking with the person who actually did the work for the Doherty, uh, Professor Nick Golding from Curtin University. We've been comparing methods and I think the methods are very similar. So the differences in what we put into the models and how we interpret the models. So um, if it's five, we can't really drive down transmission, certainly not to sort of herd immunity levels unless we are willing to vaccinate children which may mean we don't get to herd immunity, or it may mean that we choose to vaccinate children. I'm, I'm not trying to decide which one of those things is happening, but if you just vaccinate 80% uh, of the adult population um, and the effective reproduction number is five, we are not getting to herd immunity. That's not going to happen. Uh, even if we vaccinated all of the adult population, that wouldn't happen. So uh, we have a real problem which because Delta is so infectious. Th so Delta yep. could still spread and that would require uh, continuing restrictions. Now, the other assumption that yes. Doherty made was that kids didn't seem to be too much of a problem, that they weren't transmitters. Yeah, well, well um, my model also assumes that children are less transmitters than adults are in the same way as they were with the original strain, but the whole strain itself is a whole lot more infectious. But children are still less infectious. So if that's not true, then we really have to think about vaccinating children because it would be even worse than the models that I'm looking at are um, suggesting. So what do we know about, uh, so, what do we know yeah, about Delta? What do we know about Delta among children? I mean, the week before or two weeks before the British schools broke up for summer, there were 640 kids at home either because they got the virus or they were for primary contacts. Yes, so we know it's much more likely to be found in children and that children are, I think, the second biggest group uh, in, in the work from the UK, and that's been a real shift uh, between compared with the alpha strain. Um, we don't yet know, and I'm not sure it's going to be really tricky to find out how much children are actually transmitting um, transmitting the virus or are they just um, becoming infectious? They're sort of the end of a transmission train or are they really drivers of transmission. And that will be the real key as to whether how important it is to vaccinate children, I think. But this is really going to affect the decisions about opening up. And, and so it's stuff we don't know yet. Uh, yes, that's true. So, uh, I mean, we don't, we don't have a vaccine yet for kids anyway. So, I mean, that's, that, that's a hypothetical. Well, we can give Pfizer down to the age of 12. And at the moment, that's not recommended. So I think um, my personal view is we should seriously think about giving Pfizer to for 12-year-olds and upwards uh, as, a, as a routine, not just for very vulnerable children. Um, the 5 to 12-year-olds, the, the data's, the, you know, 5 to 11-year-olds, the data's still, uh, we're still awaiting clinical trials, so we don't know that it's safe and effective to vaccinate those children yet, and so, of course, we shouldn't be doing that. Now, on Coronacast, we're getting a lot of questions from parents saying they're worried about their kids because they know that it's shifting downwards. So as more and more older people get immunised, the virus is going mm. to find its way into children and they're worried. Yeah, so so certainly my model suggests that the infectiousness of Delta is enough that it can now start circulating amongst children. And that was definitely not the case with the original variant, that once you you could just get, get 
the, the infection out of the young adults and older and children would not sustain transmission. That's definitely not true in my models um, of the Delta. So, yeah, I, I mean, this is this is the concern. Now, of course, children are much less um, susceptible to serious consequences. They have less long COVID, which I heard you discussing this morning or Friday, I can't remember. Um, and uh, that's that's really great news. Children are less likely to become very sick or die. But it's it's still a disease of some considerable concern among children, um, concerning well, enough that I think just for their own sake, it might be worth vaccinating children. I've only got a few seconds left. What does all this mean for New South Wales and opening up? It means we're not going to, we're nowhere near herd immunity. Uh, if we open up, there'll be tr a lot of transmission. And the best we can hope for is reducing the number of hospitalizations and deaths through the direct effect of good vaccines like AstraZeneca and Pfizer and Moderna now. Well, let's hope. Emma, thanks for joining us. Okay, thank you for having me. You heard the big sigh there from Professor Emma McBride, talked about New South Wales. Professor Emma McBride is an infectious diseases physician and epidemiologist at James Cook University. And you're listening to Aaron's Health Report. What does a heart attack look like? Grabbing the left arm, searing, stabbing chest pain? Well, yes, but not always, especially if you're a woman. We've known for years that there are gender differences in how heart attacks present, but that didn't mean that Launceston woman Sandra Coma recognised a heart attack when it was happening to her. The first symptom that I felt was breathlessness because my partner and I walk every day for at least 45 minutes. And this particular day, I couldn't get around one circuit without stopping. The next day, I had a, a funny pain across my chest, but it was one pain in like the whole of the day. Third day, I had another set of pain go across my chest. I did go to hospital that day. They asked me lots of questions. They did a couple of tests. The doctor said, look, we can't find anything. We went home. The next day, the whole day, I felt nauseous. I was lethargic. Day five, I got up and this pain just went from my right-hand side. It just went right across my chest and it grabbed me on the left-hand side it made me curl over a little bit and the pain was that intense. It felt like a childbirth contraction. My partner said, are you okay? And I said, no. I said, I don't think I am. Trotted off to hospital. This time they said, well, we'll put you in a bed in ER for observation. And then all of a sudden, I felt this really sharp, it was more electric pain go across my chest. And it just kept going and going and she put an ECG on me. In the background, I heard something like code blue and somebody says, oh, there's a heart attack going on. Oh. And I turned to my partner and I said, oh, God, I said, gosh, I said, some poor bugger's having a heart attack. <laughs> Not realising it was me. And I'm just lying there with the, the ECGs going and I'm moaning with pain because this is intensifying. And Greg said, yeah, you know, he says, I don't know where, you know. And we were going over to the recess bay and all of a sudden I've got five cardiologists around me and the main guy says, you're having a heart attack, but you'll be okay. And I thought, oh, I turned to my partner and I said, I said, it's me having the heart attack, <laughs> you know. As funny as it sounds, heart attack hadn't even entered my head. 
I'd had a uh, what they call a widow maker and everybody tells me how lucky I was to be in the emergency department when I had my heart attack. One of the cardiologists said to me, no, he said, you're not lucky. He said, you listened to your body. Your body was telling you there was something wrong and you got yourself to hospital. That's Sandra Comer, who had a so-called widowmaker heart attack in July last year. That refers to the left main coronary artery being severely blocked. It's often fatal, which makes the rather slow reaction to Sandra's situation even scarier, especially when you realise that it's far from rare. In fact, new Australian research has shown that women who gets, women get slower care than men every step of the way even when they have the worst type of heart attack. One of the authors of this study joins us now. Welcome, Professor Zaman, who's an interventional cardiologist at Westmead Hospital and a researcher at the University of Sydney. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Tegan. Thanks for having me. So we've known for years that women are undertreated for heart attacks compared with men. Why is this still a problem? Well, I think it's a pretty complex issue and there's not one main, one single reason that it, that it can explain the differences that we're seeing. But I guess for myself, I've studied the delays that happen with the most severe form of heart attack. So what Sandra's describing could be a most severe form where the heart artery is actually completely blocked off. We often call it a STEMI or an ST elevation heart attack. And here we can see delays in terms of the female patient actually feels that she's low risk for the heart attack. So she takes longer to come to hospital. And then there's actually healthcare system delays as well, which is really what we were focusing in on this study. Right. So you looked at the Victorian Cardiac Outcomes Registry and found that even from like when someone's making that call to triple zero all the way through the system to when they're like on the operating operating table getting a stent, that there were delays between women and men. Exactly right. And that was what was so surprising and what we actually feel like we really need to get it out there to do something about this. Because originally we knew that there were delays in female patients presenting to the hospital. But from this study, we actually looked at all the women who came in by ambulance and compared them to the men. And the delay wasn't just about the women failing to recognise their symptoms and calling the ambulance. There was actually a delay from the time where the ambulance took the call and sent out the ambulance to the patient, all the way up to getting them to the ECG, to getting them to the emergency department. And then even once they arrive in the emergency department, we're seeing a delay for that woman to get on the table where we do the stenting procedure to open up the blocked or occluded artery. And this is all adjusted for differences. So this is irrespective of differences in age or other underlying health conditions or the severity of the heart attack or the time of day that the heart attack occurred. So when we adjust for all these all these differences between men and women, women still on average take 10 to 15 minutes longer to get that blocked artery open. And it's so important because you know, time is muscle, is what we say as interventional cardiologists. So the longer your heart artery is blocked, the more heart muscle will die and the bigger your heart attack will be. So 10 minutes really does make a big difference here. And 10, min- 10 minutes makes a huge difference. But keep in mind, that is an average delay of 10 minutes across the spectrum. So in some women, we're seeing much, much larger delays. We're talking half an hour to hours. Um, obviously, in some women, there's lesser delays. But the 10 minutes was the average delay after adjusting for all those confounders. Right. So it feels like we've got to train everyone, women in the general public, but then also like ambulance dispatchers and paramedics and ER staff, not just cardiologists who are like the finish line here. 
Exactly right, yeah. And I think as cardiologists, we've started to recognise this because there's lots of publications that pretty much say the same thing, that perhaps there is a bit of a healthcare uh, bias in recognising our female patients when they present with chest pain. But this shows that we have to educate the public, we have to educate our you know female patients that they can have heart attacks. We have to educate the person taking that call for the ambulance so that they know just because it's a female calling with chest pain, you don't send that ambulance out with any lower triage than if it was a man, 60-year-old man with classical symptoms. And then it goes through. We, we need to continually educate paramedics and healthcare providers that potentially there is some form of unconscious bias that's contributing to this delay. Whose job is it to take responsibility for all of this education though? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. I mean, a lot of, in terms of the patient and the public education, we have organisations that do take it upon themselves. The National Heart Foundation, for instance, has done a fantastic job of specifically targeting campaigns for women. Um, But the other education, you know, it's very state-based. So, for instance, we looked at Ambulance Victoria. So it would have to be upon Ambulance Victoria then to take this study back and use it to educate their paramedics. And same with the healthcare system. You know, it's, it's, it's very hard to mandate an education Australia-wide. It really has to be upon each individual institution to educate their healthcare professionals. But I guess what you could do is you could ingrain it into the medical system. So by during medical school, we actually give medical students education about the potential for bias and how it can impact our patients. So really briefly, if you had one message for Australia out of your research, what would it be? Well, I think the the main message is that there is some bias there and I think it is upon all of us, both as if we feel that we're a patient, both as women, we need to recognise that we can have heart attacks and be aware of the presenting symptoms. And if we're a healthcare provider, that we need to be aware that there might be some unconscious bias at play and we should look at our female patients, I guess, in the same way as we look at our male patients. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Professor Sarah Zaman is an academic interventional cardiologist at Westmead Hospital and the University of Sydney. In a culture where drinking alcohol is so prevalent and part of almost every social occasion, it can be hard for young people to avoid the pressure to drink. Add to that research, which finds that people living with anxiety are more likely to turn to alcohol in unhelpful ways. And it's a problem that may be growing due to the pandemic. In this, our ongoing series on substance use, we're going to look more closely at this unhelpful relationship, something that Martin knows only too well about as a young person. Luckily, he's come through well. I think just growing up in Australia in general, there's a lot of emphasis on drinking alcohol to be social. At a stage of my life where I felt a bit shy or insecure or not confident in who I was, drinking alcohol was a way to combat social anxiety. And what did that lead to? I think it led to experiences that weren't necessarily the best for me. It also didn't treat my anxiety. I think, if anything, it usually made it worse. The decisions you make while you're under the influence essentially can increase more of that anxiety in you as a young person. Just describe the sort of anxiety you used to suffer from. A lot of the anxiety was around, I guess, just growing up in Australia. I'm growing up as a migrant, having different identities. I think there was a lot of anxiety about finding my place in society, trying to decide what that looked like. And what did you feel inside yourself? So that if somebody's listening, they'd say, aha, that's what I feel. And I didn't realize that was anxiety. Yeah, I think sometimes it kind of felt like the world was spinning. It felt like you couldn't breathe. I 
always notice the physical symptoms of anxiety. So I'd have shaky hands or I'd have a dry mouth or I just feel my chest beating very fast. Let's add alcohol to this story. How does alcohol enter this story for you? As a young person, there's the world of alcohol. You go there as a way, not detached, but I guess get away from your problems. It's a way to be social. It's a way people perceive to have fun. You see it as something to do with your mates. And if you're not doing it, then something's wrong with, not wrong with you, but you're different. So I think there's a lot of pressure there to drink. And did the alcohol use get worse or did it increase? I was fortunate enough to be surrounded by friends that were quite supportive. And also I was aware of the services available. I kind of had the realization that this wasn't really helping me. And I knew that there were services that I could reach out to. And what did they do for you? And where are you now? My anxiety is a lot better. The biggest help was seeing a psychologist. The psychologist really helped with addressing the underlying issues of my anxiety. Also, as a young person, like being social, things like that. They taught me techniques that were really helpful in coping with my anxiety. I think also just having friends that were super supportive, that understood that we didn't necessarily have to drink all the time. And what's your advice for a young person listening? I'd say that there's a lot of services out there that are available to them. I'd say that it's really important that you find a good group of friends that are supportive of your decisions to not drink alcohol or to be able to support you um, while you're feeling anxious. I know for myself, that's what's really benefited for me. There's a lot of pressure as a young person to be social and to drink alcohol, but it's totally up to you and it's your decision. That's Martin sharing his story about alcohol and anxiety. Dr. Lexine Stepinski is a clinical psychologist at the Matilda Centre for Research in Mental Health and Substance Use at the University of Sydney. She researches the relationship between anxiety and substance use and has helped to design an online program which in clinical trial results published today was found to reduce both anxiety and harmful alcohol use in young people. What we see in the general community and in people presenting for treatment, that these two problems commonly go together. So if you have an anxiety disorder, you're going to be two to three times more likely to also have an alcohol use disorder. And so what I've looked at is some of the reasons why that might be. Horse and cart, chicken and egg, which comes first? Ah, that's such a good question. What we tend to find is that people's anxiety symptoms will tend to precede their alcohol use disorder. So like in time, they'll have the anxiety younger in adolescence and then the alcohol use will come later. But I guess one of the things that's really important when we're talking about anxiety and alcohol use is they tend to feed each other. So it becomes a bit of a vicious cycle. For parents of young children listening, there are young children who experience anxiety. The child who, when you ask the teacher, oh, they're a wonderful child, they never bother me, they're the perfect child in class. But in fact, they're quivering with anxiety at the back of the class, terrified the teacher might ask them something and, yeah. they, and they shrink away. And they're often quite clingy. They have separation anxiety when the parents want to go out to the movies and leave a babysitter, that sort of thing. Now, is, yeah. that, is that a predictor of alcohol use later or is that a different problem? The relationship between anxiety and alcohol is a little bit funny in that, yes, we do know that people with anxiety problems are more likely to use alcohol earlier and also to get into problems with alcohol use. But it's a bit of a mixed picture because sometimes anxiety can be protective. So a young person that you're talking about there who's very concerned about doing the right thing and, you know, probably quite afraid of getting into trouble, underage drinking might be very, very concerning for that person. 
So at times anxiety can be protective, but then for other people, it can be a risk factor because they can tend to use alcohol to cope with their symptoms, to self-medicate, to make them feel more confident. So it's a bit of a, a mixed bag, I'd say, but we certainly know that anxiety and alcohol use can go together. And when they do go together, the problems tend to be worse and more difficult to recover from. So you've got two young people with anxiety. Is there anything in them that would predict the features of that person or their anxiety that would suggest they're going to seek a substance like alcohol or cannabis or something else to effectively treat their anxiety to feel better versus another person who doesn't? In general, for young people, there are a number of factors that might protect them and conversely cause greater risk in terms of using substances. So these are things like the peer groups that they're in. We know particularly for adolescents, they're so affected by their friends. So whether they're in a peer group who are likely to use, but then also parents. Parents just play such a, a really important role. And I know that often parents of teenagers say to us, I don't really feel like I have much influence over my teenager, but they really, really do. So things like having strong strong lines of communication, uh, role modelling, having clear expectations about alcohol use and other illicit drug use as well. So those things are really important in terms of protecting against substance use. So what you've been looking at is the situation where you've got, if you like, coexistence of anxiety and particularly alcohol use and other drug use. How does it evolve from there? What we tend to see happening is that someone who has both problems, the problems will tend to exacerbate each other. So to give you an example, one really common type of anxiety that people might use alcohol for is social anxiety, feeling shy, feeling a lack of confidence to interact with others. And of course, alcohol is so available in our social settings. But what can happen over time is the more that a person is using alcohol to feel confident, to feel able to talk to others, the the more reliant they then are on use of alcohol for that. And it can sort of erode away their confidence to interact with other people sober as well. So we see that over time, they can be increasing the amount of alcohol that they're using. And they can be doing things like, you know, needing to drink pre's before they go out because they're feeling like, I can't, I can't face these people if I don't take the edge off a little bit first. The problem can just tend to snowball, I guess, over time. You've developed this treatment program for it. Tell us about it. In our program, which is an integrated anxiety and alcohol program, what we did is we looked at the strategies in terms of how they could help people with anxiety, also how do they help them with their alcohol use, and we explicitly talk about the connection between the two. And I guess some people are really aware of the relationship, but other people aren't. So just kind of shining a light on that relationship between the anxiety and the alcohol use and helping them to put in alternative strategies, you know, when they are feeling like a drink because they're anxious. And this is called Inroads and you're also recruiting for a trial. The program that I just described was a treatment program for adults. But what we've done now, because we know that it's really important to get in early with these problems, we want to get in before things become entrenched. So what we did is we developed an online program, which was for people aged 17 to 30. And this is for people who they may not have, you know, alcohol use disorder, so to speak. They may just find that they've got some anxiety symptoms and that they feel like they're relying on using alcohol 
alcohol to cope. It's a program that people can do purely on their own, so self-guided internet program, which young people told us was actually their preference in terms of accessing treatment. And so far the results are what? We trialled the program between 2017 and 2019. So it was the online program, but also with some therapist support over the, the phone as well. And what we found was that the program was able to reduce people's anxiety symptoms and also reduce their levels of harmful drinking. And that was sustained over a six month period. So it's now been two and a half years since people finished. So we're currently following up to see whether those effects have been sustained even longer. So we're really hopeful that we'll see positive results in that as well. Dr. Alexine Stepinski is at the University of Sydney's Matilda Centre and you can get more information by visiting inroads.org.au and you can also get advice from the National Alcohol and Other Drugs hotline on 1800 250 and Beyond Blue has a line as well on 1300 224 It's well, very relatable stuff at the moment, Norman, like you said before, with so many people in lockdown. Absolutely. Just um, uh, trying to self-medicate is not a great idea. You've got to deal with the problem. Yeah, absolutely. So people have been emailing their questions in, as always, this week, Norman. It's our mailbag time. Mm -hmm. The email address, of course, is healthreport at abc.net.au. So let's start with this question from Christine, who's referencing a story that we did on the health report on the 26th of July about osteoporosis and cognitive decline and perhaps whether they do or don't go hand in hand. This study found that they did. Um, Christine has Crohn's disease and osteopenia, which was a result of steroid therapy. So she has got osteopenia because of drugs. She's now in remission. She's got she's on some drugs um, that are helping her manage her condition, but she's concerned that she might now be at greater risk of cognitive decline. Is there anything that she can do to mitigate that? I think in general what you can say here is there's, there's you know, I can't settle people's minds completely because if you've got inflammation in your body from something like autoimmune disease, the brain is at risk. But the best thing that you can do is actually treat the inflammation and that's what uh, Christine is doing. So she's treating the autoimmune disease, the Crohn's disease and treating it effectively and that's going to be the best protection she's got for her brain and she's getting exercise and um, and is out there and about and has, has got a job which stimulates the brain. So the chances of dementia, I suspect, are not much greater than anybody else in the community. So uh, I can't really uh, settle your mind completely because we're all at risk of dementia at some point but you're doing all the right things. And as we said in that story, they didn't, they weren't able to discover what the cause and effect was, if indeed it was there, whether That's it was right. an external factor. It could be that something else is driving both of those things that are happening together and that if someone's got uh, one of these conditions brought on by a drug uh, side effect, then that might be completely different. Yeah, uh, and you've not got osteoporosis, you've got osteopenia, as you quite rightly say, which is the, the bone has thinned. But it's not a disease like it's not the disease osteoporosis, and you know, cause and effect is really obscure sometimes in these things. And a question from Linda talking about one of my favourite topics, which is the scandalous absence of female bodies in medicine testing. She's really interested to know what research, if any, is being done into post-menopause conditions. She's 68. She's still getting hot flushes several times of a day or night. Her body temperature mechanism is still out of control. She was on hormone replacement therapy in the early days of her menopause, but her GP advised her to stop it. The hot flushes have come back. Is anyone researching treatment, she asks. She'd love to hear more on the topic? I think the, the problem here is that with the women's health study and the finding that HRT can raise the risk of breast cancer, um, that a lot of this research has gone into abeyance. 
I think that most menopause specialists would say for somebody in Linda's situation, as long as she understands the risk, she could go on to HRT and, um, and, and not stop it completely. So maybe the right thing to do is to get your GP to refer you to a menopause specialist. And as long as you understand that, I mean, you, I know you had the melanoma removed, but the risk is not of melanoma. The risk is of breast cancer. It's a small increased risk. And, um, and if your life is miserable with these hot flashes, then the medication, the HRT is very good for it. And you just need to understand it. And maybe there's a way of changing the dose or something like that. I'm not the expert, but I think probably a referral to a menopause expert would be a really good idea. The broader point that Linda makes is really valid, that there just isn't enough research into this. And uh, we're actually looking at putting together a special health report episode on just that. So stay tuned there too. Yep. And a question from Judy who wants to know why there's a repeated failure by respiratory physicians to diagnose subglottic stenosis in patients with a long history of breathing difficulties. Judy says that these people are often misdiagnosed with asthma. That can be a dangerous, sometimes fatal response. She says it's a condition that can be managed if diagnosed. She's one of the victims of misdiagnosis. And she's also pointing out that there's an increase of numbers with this subglottic stenosis in uh, following protracted intubation for COVID infection. So, Norman, let's start with the first question. What's subglottic stenosis? So, subglottic stenosis is a narrowing of the airway just below the larynx, just below the voice box. And there are various causes of it. One of the common causes is trauma. And yes, uh, protracted intubation, where you've got a tube inside your airway for ventilation can cause that. Now, good intensive care practice would have you, if you're going to be on a ventilator for a long time, they will put in an, an endotracheal tube, which is supposed to minimise the chance of sub- subglottic stenosis. So that's a thinner, more flexible tube, is it? Well, it's a tube that goes in through, so the, 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 rather than coming out through your mouth or your nose, they basically, it's a surgical operation where they open up in your neck and they put the tube in through your neck and you've got the, um, it's below your vocal cords. And in theory, the endotracheal tube can actually reduce that, particularly if they leave it a little bit loose, although some of them are actually quite tight there, but it gives them more flexibility. Um, And yes, subglottic stenosis is noisy breathing. It can be breathlessness, and it's often uh, misdiagnosed as asthma. There are some clues. uh, By the way, a, a, a common cause is that they don't know there's no cause, but malignancy can cause it and inflammation. We were just talking about autoimmune disease. Autoimmune disease can cause subglottic stenosis. There are various causes, but it comes on in adulthood. And yes, asthma can come on in adulthood, but if you've got noisy breathing that starts in adulthood, subglottic stenosis needs to be part of the differential diagnosis. And it can be treated by lasers or even surgery, but it's got to be diagnosed. Why is it a potentially fatal response if it's misdiagnosed as asthma? Well, it can get worse and um, and cause a blockage. Um, I think that's relatively unusual, but the it is, it is a potentially dangerous situation which you've got to get sorted out. And a final question from Paul, a COVID question. And of course, you can also send your COVID questions to our other podcast, Coronacast, abc.net.au slash coronacast. And Paul's asking, would Dr. Swan be kind enough to explain how each of the strains of COVID-19 are detected and isolated? How are they detected from a PCR test? So you can only do this from a PCR. You can't do it from a rapid antigen test. So the PCR test picks up um, small amounts of genetic material and amplifies it up. And as they amplify it up, they can detect, first of all, is the 
COVID, is the COVID-19 virus there? And that's usually all it does. But if it's got, uh, if it's positive, then what they can do is take the same sample and, uh, and amplify it and then do the genetic sequence of it. And you detect the variants by the, the genes of the virus. And so the various variants have a specific genetic pattern. They've got particular genes in the virus. And so the Delta variant's got particular genes that identify it as the Delta, the Delta variant. The Alpha had its genes. And sometimes these genes overlap, by the way. And uh, so that's how, it, that's how it determines the Delta virus is you've got a specific set of genes that they find when they sequence the virus. Now, how they can tell, and you might know the next question is, which Paul hasn't asked, is how can you tell that one Delta has come from somebody from hotel quarantine and another one is come, has come from the limo driver in, in Sydney? And that's because of the mutations in the virus that are not big enough to create a big genetic change, but are enough to give you a genetic fingerprint, which is different from virus to virus. It's still the Delta strain because they've got the key genes there, but the Delta has got variants within it, which usually don't mean anything for its function at all, but just give you a fingerprint that tells you where it came from. The health report actually had a fascinating story, I think in December last year, Norman, basically explaining how these family trees can get traced and, and drawn. Yep. And that, that's one way that they've been trying to see where the virus came from. Did it, can you find a bat virus that it was related to and so on? And you get these clades, which are just sub-variants sub of these viruses. And you get it with HIV as well. So HIV has various strains. They don't behave terribly differently, maybe a little bit differently. But, you can, but different parts of the world historically have different forms of, the, of HIV showing its fingerprints and that's what lets us track it down. Anyway, that's everything in the mailbag for tonight. Health report at abc.net.au is our email address and we'll catch you next time. We will. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.